Hello, this is Senator Katie Fry Hester, and you are listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties and your best source for Maryland politics and policy. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. This is Michael Sanderson taking the reins as the host once again this week. I'm the director at the Maryland Association of Counties, and we are happy to have another conversation for you about politics and policy across the free state. Um, I really wanted to talk about artificial intelligence today. I've been having some thoughts about that topic, and to do so, we're glad to welcome back a great guest, a friend of the pod, a frequent contributor at the MAKO conferences, Ben Yellen. Ben, thanks for joining. It's very good to be with you, Michael. Thanks for having me. Let's set the stage a little bit. You get billing as the Program Director for Public Policy and External Affairs for the Center for Health and Homeland Security, and that is hard to fit on a business card. I don't even know if we do business cards anymore. You're a high tech guy. You probably don't even do that anymore. You just, you know, swap e-bytes and so forth. But I'm sure they're, uh, you know, floating <laughs> around in my briefcase somewhere, but yeah. <laughs> so, so tell our listeners, what do you actually do? What, where's the center fit and so forth? What's, what's your role in all this stuff? Sure. So first I'll say that title sounds way more impressive than it actually is. Uh, but <laughs> I will uh, heavily promote the work of the wonderful Center for Health and Homeland Security. We sit within the University of Maryland system at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. And we do basically two things. We do consulting on issues in emergency management. So most of our clients are really uh, entities that are very similar to you, state and local uh, government institutions. Uh, So we work both with state uh, agencies like the Maryland Department of Emergency Management, and then a lot of local emergency management offices, uh, offices of of public health and so forth. And basically, the consulting side is just uh, formulating plans and policies that conform with legal requirements um, in in drafting out emergency preparedness plans, continuity of operations, that type of thing. Separate from that, we also have an academic side. Uh, So we teach courses at the University of Maryland Cary School of Law. I teach one on national security, electronic surveillance, and the Fourth Amendment. Uh, We try and keep ourselves abreast on new emerging issues in the general fields of public health preparedness, cybersecurity, data privacy, so that we can kind of put forward some thought leadership on it. And Uh, Over the past couple of years, uh, I've worked closely with you guys and also with members of the state legislature on cybersecurity policy here in the state of Maryland. I know we all worked together on getting a package of cybersecurity uh, policy bills passed back in 2022. Uh, And then I also do legislative tracking for the Maryland Department of Emergency Management. Uh, They've uh, brought us on to do that. So just like you guys, I... uh, get to monitor the goings-ons in Annapolis, which is a great a great joy to me. Me and you are probably two of the only, like, 10 people in the world who like following the, the day-to-day <laughs> trials and tribulations of a legislature. But I do love it. I like it. It does, it does feel like we run in similar circles, um, even though you have a far more impressive-sounding title and all the things you just dropped are um, unimaginably more interesting than things I do on the regular. But... Uh, Nonetheless, um, I, I like that you're engaged in policy, and I know that our member counties get an awful lot out of having partners like like the Center for Health and Homeland Security um, here in Maryland, but expertise that's sort of worldwide. 
um, that's always really helpful to have a trusted partner like that. So you on a panel at a Mako conference talking about best practices for cybersecurity or data management and so forth, it just adds gravity to our conversation. We really welcome that. It's been a terrific partnership. And you at the witness stand in the General Assembly trying to help guide them on the way to build out our responsiveness for a cyber incident or that sort of thing, I think it has landed well with policymakers too. So good on you. Oh, I much appreciate it. It's been great to build relationships with you guys and uh, and the legislature as well. It's kind of a, a new venture for the center. We've been around 20 years and, and you know, until maybe four or five years ago, we hadn't really dabbled that much into the public policy world. So, right. uh, yeah. So, so Ari, I, I shouldn't miss this opportunity because I know, you know, we're in the podcast universe and I know you are the co-host of your own podcast. So go ahead, plug your pod. Tell us where if folks come away from this episode wanting to hear more from you, which I anticipate they will, where should they go to hear you? Yeah, so some shame, uh, shameless self-promotion. I am the co-host of a podcast called The Caveat Podcast. It is part of the CyberWire Network, which is now part of something called the N2K uh, Podcast Network. And we talk about law and policy issues related to privacy, surveillance, uh, basically anything having to do with data privacy, Fourth Amendment as it relates to uh, various types of new technology uh, we release our podcast once a week, comes out on Thursday morning. So I uh, highly encourage you to give it a listen if that's something you're interested in. Excellent. Well, we will put a connection to the Caveat podcast in our show notes for this episode so our listeners can find you easily. But all right, so let's let's slide into talking a little bit about some tech stuff. I will say it's always been a good brand for this podcast to talk about technology and where public policy is sort of struggling to catch up with fast-moving tech. And this happens time and time again. It was years ago with, we had all these laws written for taxi cabs, and suddenly you have Uber and Lyft redefining the whole idea of on-call transportation. Um, it's just wave after wave of whether it's cybersecurity or data management, all these different issues. I'm feeling like artificial intelligence. I mean, okay, demographically, I'm in my 50s. Um, so I'm feeling like the rapid emergence of a whole new notion of artificial intelligence, this feels like it's a really big wave. And it feels like it's potentially as big of a deal as the stuff I remember from back in the early 90s when email was just starting to catch on and the internet was evolving and it started to have a role in the workplace, in business, with just regular folks' lives and so forth. Um, I don't know. It feels like a really big deal. There's stuff I'm thinking about and I'm nervous about and so forth. Maybe I'm becoming my dad. I don't know. But you're a lot closer to this than most of us out here. And I've heard you talk about tech issues of a variety of sorts. And and you you put things in a helpful perspective for those of us who are not principally tech people. So I don't know. Like, like there's an internet Start at the term, ground like, level here. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, you know, they, they, sometimes they say on the internet, like explain like I'm five. So I don't know if I need a five-year-old version, but like, can you explain this? Like I'm 11, my, like I'm on my 11 year old son. What's going on with artificial intelligence right now? What should we be thinking about? Yeah, sure. So 11 sounds good. I have trouble explaining even more basic things to my four and a half year old. So, you know, <laughs> Five, five just adds a level of difficulty to it. So basically, 
Uh, we've had artificial intelligence uh, to one degree or another for the past 40 or 50 years. Right. As its kind of dictionary definition, it is the ability of some type of computer system to perform tasks that are normally uh, performed by humans or require some type of human intelligence. Uh, so the examples we always cite, visual perception, recognizing speech, recognizing patterns, decision-making, um, and then simple things like translation between languages, which amazingly, it, that's something that wasn't so easy to do 20, 30 years ago, uh, the way the way it is now. So I think artificial intelligence, there's kind of like the pre, I want to say 2022, 2023 artificial intelligence. You think of things like algorithms on social media. I'm not telling YouTube, you know, every five minutes what type of videos I'm interested in. YouTube mm -hmm. records uh, or takes note of which videos I've watched in the past and using predictive algorithms based on millions of other users, that's kind of the input, they guess which videos might be of interest to me. So that was kind of like your prototypical example of artificial intelligence maybe two to three years ago. What's really come out in the past couple of years is something called generative artificial intelligence. So you'll recognize that when we're talking about things like ChatGPT or whatever the other versions of it. I know Microsoft has a version. Uh, the artist formerly known as Twitter has a, <laughs> a generative AI called Grok, which I've actually never used. Uh, but I think most people kind of recognize it as as the ChatGPT type of AI. Right. Right. Uh, and basically, the way that works is it's just more, it's a more advanced model of artificial intelligence. It uses deep learning, uh, and it uses what it's learned from your inputs, from your questions, and from the resources that that generative AI system has to engage in more complicated interactions. Uh, so instead of just producing a predictive algorithm, it can uh, actually write a whole essay. Uh, it's just an advanced form of human knowledge. And the generative aspect of it is the uh, system is constantly learning. It's constantly informing itself of both facts in the world and of patterns of human behavior that it can recognize from the inputs that we are giving it. Uh, right. So I'll stop there. I know that's <laughs> that's a lot. Uh, yeah. That's a lot to handle. But yeah, we can stop there and see if that was a proper 11 year old explanation. Yeah. No, I, I think that's I think that's a about right and like tell me tell me if i'm overreacting but to me it feels like i i agree with you like, like the idea of the youtube algorithm or what does netflix think might be a good movie for me to watch next now that i watch this those sort of things um i don't know they crept up on us and, and felt okay and comfortable even though there's a little bit of intrusiveness like you know that you know somebody is watching my clicks and watching my views and making judgments based on that and i get customized ads right i go to a, right. i go to a website and i say um hey i have uh, strange feet i need extra wide shoes and then i get ads all over the place you know wherever i go for hey you must want those extra wide shoes Great, great. Now I get that for like 18 months, right? It's even creepier when you're just talking with somebody about shoes and then like you open up Facebook and there's an ad for shoes. And it's right. like, who's listening oh, yes. to me? Yeah. Yes. And in a, in a house full of, you know, devices named Alexa um, in our house where we have voluntarily created these devices that have, um, you know, that have uh, receptors all day long, you can't help but feel like, oh, that recipe recommendation seems 
alarmingly on point, right? Right, right, for sure. So, I mean, this stuff has been creeping for some time, and we've always been aware that, you know, there were nerds with computers that could program some, you know, database to answer questions about Shakespeare, right? And in some like little confined universe, some system could pass the Turing test and and make a convincing sound of being a human being as opposed to being just a database or just a program. So like we I think we've all built built that in, but something happened over the last 18 months or so. I think I think maybe it's, you know, I don't know if it's in the creation of images or just the release of the chat GPT tool that, like you said, that could write the entire essay start to finish with nice concluding sentences at the end and a good topic sentence in each paragraph. And there would be a narrative flow. And that stuff, I think for a lot of us felt like, wait, like this stuff has been in that bottle all this, all this time. We've been that close. Like that feels shocking, doesn't it? Yeah, it it really does. I mean, first I'll say I always have to put in uh, a little plug for AI because I think a lot of people are naturally like you are a little fearful about it. And before I get into the many negative aspects of it, like there are a lot of very uh, important uses of AI that we're seeing come online now. I mean, uh, Baltimore City, I believe, just purchased a new system uh, for 911 that uses artificial intelligence tools that uh, can help guide dispatchers to give them more information than simply the words being spoken by the caller uh, when they call that public safety answering point. Right. That's really promising. I mean, for using artificial intelligence as a tool to fight wildfires, like that stuff is great. But yeah, then you have all of these really scary drawbacks. Uh, mm-hmm. One, I think we've talked about a good deal is how a lot of these algorithms and artificial intelligence systems somehow are even more discriminatory than many humans. We never thought it would be possible. Uh, So there's that question of discrimination uh, and equitable use of these systems. Uh, And then, you know, I think we'll get into this, but just my fear of artificial intelligence kind of seeping into the public conscience uh, in the political realm where we have things like deep fake videos that are purporting to be from political candidates because artificial intelligence systems have advanced so much. These are more and more convincing uh, and people are going to end up getting bad information from a fake Joe Biden or a fake Donald Trump uh, giving a speech. And so those things are certainly a cause for concern. I mean, I think The bottom line is the technology always moves faster than both our legal system and our political system. And I get it. Uh, It's impossible for legislators who don't have technical expertise to formulate the perfect regulation that's going to give us all of the good aspects of AI without any of the bad aspects. But I think it's at this point about just setting up good governance institutions so that there's somebody smart out there making rules for this so that we don't lose control of the system before it takes over our lives. So I, I, I join you in wanting to, we want to elevate the upside of these tools because there, there are probably limitless possibilities for where quick processing by an AI system might be able to help you know, whatever emergency room admissions or, you know, like, you know, like that, that notion of the, the, the specialist at the 911 call center 
who's trying to process difficult information from a person who's not able to communicate super clearly and have an AI system say, this person probably needs this kind of help. Uh, the, the the pacing of their speaking may suggest that someone's in um, cardiac distress or something like that. I mean, an AI system that could add, could, could make our dispatcher a super powered person. That's super attractive, right? I mean, you, you want that, you want the upside of those skills in the hands of, lots and lots of people. I love it. Um, and then it comes with these potential quirky downsides. So you already anticipated one of the things that, you know, that, that, that got me thinking about this right over the last couple of weeks, we saw that the, 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 the deep fake of, of president Biden, I guess I'm trying to remember where this was, but, um, I think it was in New maybe Hampshire, in, in New yeah. Hampshire, right. Telling New Hampshire voters, a you know, robocall to New Hampshire voters with, a very convincing Joe Biden voice saying, don't worry about the primary. Don't, you don't need to vote. Everything's fine or something yeah. like that. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, that, that really stuck out to me because I heard sure. a recording of it and it was very convincing. Like if I wasn't seeing it in a news story, I would have been like, why is Joe Biden saying this to New Hampshire voters? Right. Yes. And, I, and I, so I guess that's, you know, if, if these tools are literally resting with everybody who's got a laptop. You set up an account and you you can sort of, you know, give a little direction to one of these one of these GPT tools or whatnot and start harnessing pretty advanced AI tools for a purpose that may be beneficial for you in your work or in your job or whatever. But then also in theory, if you're trying to do something nefarious or harmful, those tools are in your hands as well. Um, that's what seems really weird. If it, you know, I don't know, five years ago, even three years ago, two years ago, it might have felt like, oh, the ability to do a deep fake video that would really convince lots and lots of people that this celebrity did this thing or this politician said that thing, that's pretty far off. That's just people with really high-end tech. And now right. I don't know, like we're all learning to well, watch watch the mouth. Does the mouth match up perfectly? And look at those teeth and stuff. Like, are we? We all have to learn all these skills about diagnosing deep fakes. I'm I'm worried about my ability to do that. <laughs> yeah, and the fact is, for an average person, it's relatively easy to create a deep fake video. Yeah, uh, and it's relatively easy to do all different types of political propaganda using AI tools. It's not like you know, you have to access some type of novel technology that's only available to the techiest of tech people in Silicon Valley. Right. Like right. you can use these tools for some, some of them for free, like uh, ChatGPT 3.5 is is free to use, for example. Uh, but even many of the more advanced tools, you can use them for a relatively small price. So I think that, uh, you know, gives us additional cause for alarm. I, I guess my thinking on it is... is we're in this world now. It exists. Uh, we're kind of past the point of no return. We can't stop this technology from developing. So what can we do? And I think that gets into the role of policymakers at every level of government. I think we'd feel less bad and worried about it if policymakers at least were putting together, even if you know, at the beginning, these are voluntary frameworks, recommendations for some of these big companies to follow. Uh, but I think it's important um, just for our own psyche that we're developing ethical standards, ways to uh, 
reap the benefits of this technology without having to suffer some of its worst aspects. And the encouraging thing is we've really we've seen that at the federal level, the Biden administration put out um, really helpful guidance on their AI policies. And I know you guys have been following this stuff in the Maryland State Legislature. I know the Joint Committee on Cybersecurity Information Technology and Biotechnology. I always forget the full name of that committee. They held a couple of hearings uh, over the interim to talk through these issues. There was a briefing on AI, I know, at the beginning of the session. So here in Mm -hmm. Maryland, it's just good to see. I I know it seems like a, a very small step, but it's just good to see people talking about it and trying to figure out where can policymakers step in and uh, create some boundaries around this technology? So I take I take some solace in that. So to hear you say that you think those are productive steps, I don't know what to make of a governmental executive order that tries to create ground rules. I mean, I might, my my cynical side moves quickly to think, well, that will get you know that will get the most law abiding and conformist actors under wraps, but not the folks who are already pressing the edges and the kind of person who wants to use this technology for something naughty probably isn't going to pay attention to what Joe Biden says, right? So, I, I mean, I guess I, I worry at that level, but I mean, it's still the right thing to do. I would, I would, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on board with that. Yeah. And I'll also say like so much of generative AI right now is being done by the big players. And this might sound kind of crass, but like you can really shame those guys. You know, if you get somebody from Microsoft in front of a congressional committee and be like, look, you've set up this generative AI tool. Here are all the bad things that can happen from it. What are you going to do to produce guardrails uh, to make sure that whatever you're doing uh, has some type of ethical framework? And that stuff has actually worked pretty well in the past. I mean, there's this like voluntary consortium of these big tech companies who are working through some of these issues to the point where, you know, for academic purposes, I've tested out certain things on these generative AI uh, platforms. And there are things it will refuse to do for ethical reasons. And that, to me, brings me a little bit of promise. Uh, yes, you're not going to be able to stop the the rogue actor, whether that's a malign yeah. foreign government or just some cyber criminal. But to get the major players in this, at least thinking about their role in you know, making sure that use of this technology is as positive as it can be, I think that is also something positive that I might not have expected over the past few years. Right. It's a it's a backdoor way to end up saying, you know, something odd. I mean, folks are critical of the consolidation of the major tech players that, you know, these these five big companies represent such a large share of the whatever market cap of the Nasdaq or other things like that. These tech giants are too big, too big to fail, too big to jail, all that kind of stuff. But in this particular case. Like the idea of you can wrangle up four or five executives and throw them in front of you know a, a committee and and run the cameras and, and hector them a little bit. There's something to be said for that. I, I I don't disagree. There's there is a human element behind all this as well. And those companies want to stay in good standing with those of us who are on the right side of these issues too. I, I get that. I think so. And there's also like you kind of have to go at it with a carrot and stick approach because. There are some legitimate threats for more significant mandatory regulation out there in state governments. I mean, one I've talked about a good deal is a proposal on Washington state. It would only apply to state government agencies, but there would have to be 
a pre-approval process within the agency to use any sort of new algorithm. Uh, Mm. So, I mean, that's the type of thing that these technology companies are probably going to be fearful about if more and more states adopt these rather heavy-handed regulations. So I think it behooves them to kind of join the the movement before, you know, somebody starts to, to punish them for their success. Right. I mean, that that reminds me of of like an awkward moment I've 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 been present for a couple of times at public hearings on legislation dealing with cyber threats and so forth and you you've probably heard, seen this exact same moments I'm going to describe but you'll have a bill that purports to say hey anytime a public agency receives or or identifies that there's been some sort of cyber threat or attack they should file a report with the following authorities and indicate the nature of what happened. And yeah, there's, there's some um, well-intentioned, maybe, you know, state legislator or bill drafter who's sitting there typing this thinking, great. So we'll, we'll create a, a file. And so we have information on when there was a threat. And then someone like you or some expert says, we're going to have to file this 1500 times a day because that's the number of times that, this system for this county's election system is actually being threatened by some sort of external thing that we've, we, we keep them all at bay, but this is not a, a once in a blue moon circumstance that there's a cyber threat. This is happening all the time. Um, and then, you know, the poor legislator just says this sort of sullen look of, oh, right, we probably don't want to have to fill out this form and triplicate 1500 times a day. Right. <laughs> right. Right. The worst, the worst nightmare of any, uh, <laughs> Local level right. bureaucrat is more paperwork, right? Yeah. So, um, so so l- let me ask one question because this actually is is timely in Annapolis, and although I I don't think this is the end of the conversation, but let me connect this to a bill that's pending in Annapolis. We've got a bill um, which has actually been introduced for several years, which is an indication I think that the powers that be haven't gotten this to a point where they're comfortable, but a bill that's that wants to limit the ability that governments can use facial recognition software. So another emerging capability is the ability to have some sort of a camera or a scanner that can watch as people go by and then potentially match faces with records that it has from something else. And the notion of facial recognition software could be used by um, you know, a, a law enforcement agency to say, well, you were one of the people at this this demonstration that was an anti-government demonstration, and now we've got you on a list that we're going to watch you closely or, or something along those lines. That sort of thing has ACLU and, and privacy advocates really nervous and interested in some sort of reigning legislation along these lines. We haven't passed something really broadly like that here in Maryland, but it's something people are thinking about. Maybe this is the beginning of a broader conversation about putting guardrails on this kind of technology when in the hands of the government, as opposed to things that the government is worried about third party actors having. Do you have any thoughts about either facial recognition or whatever the next waves might be spurred on by rapidly, you know, rapidly expanding AI? I think you make a really good point that facial recognition is kind of the low-hanging fruit because I think it's most offensive yeah. use to most people is law enforcement. So that's something where 
Obviously, right. the state legislature and even uh, local governments can have a role in shaping. I mean, they have oversight over uh, these law enforcement agencies. Uh, facial recognition technology is interesting. I mean, I'm always sensitive to the fact that this is an incredibly effective law enforcement tool to be able to match somebody's face at a crime scene up against a database uh, from you know, the MVA, potentially, or even our uh, correctional system. That's a very valuable tool. And if I were uh, a law enforcement officer in a high crime area and, you know, I saw a bunch of folks in Annapolis trying to take this tool away from me, I'm just expressing my sympathy and my understanding that this has proved extremely valuable in many uh, law enforcement investigations. But there, of course, is another side to it. And we've seen all of these stories where uh, people have been misidentified through facial recognition systems and it really had their lives ruined. Uh, I just saw a story last week about a man uh, who was falsely identified by a facial recognition system. There was a crime scene, I believe, in Texas. He was in California, uh, but he was convicted of the crime on the basis of this false evidence and spent several years behind bars. Uh, and that's just a completely unacceptable outcome. Right. So, and it's happened all over the country. It's it's particularly acute uh, when it comes to people of color, just because that's uh, some of the shortcomings of how our facial recognition technology systems have been have been trained. Uh, so there's that uh, question of discrimination, which which I think is out there. So right. yeah. You know, it, it really is. It's a double edged sword. As much as I'm sympathetic to law enforcement, to me, if you're just kind of comparing the value that it provides investigators versus the potential for harm, you can understand the perspective of an organization like the ACLU saying, however many criminals this helps you apprehend you know, X many uh, people have been falsely identified through facial recognition uh, and, you know, have had their freedom taken away. So it's just a it's a really, really difficult vexing issue. Um, I know it's not a satisfying answer, but I I don't think there is a satisfying answer. Right. I mean, the issues of of recognition and identification expand beyond AI. Right. I mean, yeah, I think I think the the modern view on uh, criminal evidence is that witness identifications have maybe changed in our stand. You know, I think the correct view on an eyewitness identification of a suspect as a reliable bit of evidence has really eroded in maybe the last generation. Right, that that there it's a notoriously unreliable piece of in, information. Someone sees a series of suspects or a lineup or picks someone out of a book and says, that's definitely the person there's, there's something psychological that is imperfect about that process. It appears yeah. and maybe in some similar ways, a- AI is tricked. Maybe in similar ways to the way our own brains are, are, are tricked, but there's something about that process that's less than perfect, even though it feels like it should be reliable um, so, like, there's just like caveats abound. Back, ooh, there we go. Pun intended. Uh, pun intended, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I know this is getting super meta, but like <laughs> a lot of the biases that we possess, I mean, we as humans are the ones that have developed these systems. So, you know, garbage in, garbage out. The algorithms, in many ways, reflect 
the individual biases of humans. We were the ones who created the original inputs. So, you know, I hope there is a way for policymakers to balance the legitimate law enforcement need. You know, we're in a time where I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the top issue in the General Assembly this year is crime fighting, especially among juveniles. Uh, So if you're in law enforcement and you see legislators threatening to take one of your most important new tools away, I I understand that's a difficult prospect. Uh, But I just hope there's a way to uh, be able to benefit from this technology, uh, but use it sparingly enough that we don't run the risk of the, these false identifications, which I just think none of us really can accept. Right. I think I think framing it as a balance is probably sort of you know the right way to set up this conversation going forward. That's going to be that's going to be with us for some time. I, I mean, I don't think there's any way around it that this technology is evolving rapidly. It has so much promise and probably carries so much profit. Let's be let's be honest. That oh, that's totally. Yeah. A big part of what's going to motivate this that, you know, just ask everybody who's been holding NVIDIA stock for the last two years. Right. So I can't um, ask up there in uh, Cancun it, on a vacation. So <laughs> that's yeah. right. Yeah, you can't find them. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's 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 about it. So, you know, as, as a as a practical matter, the, the driving forces are there. I think the advent is inevitable. It behooves policymakers to be smart on this, to try and keep up, to be thinking ahead as much as you can, and and to think of all these applications and be wary of where things can go wrong. So I think I think it's right to think about privacy. It's right to think about security. But back to where you tried to start us off with, look at the upside. We can be excited about opportunities that can lie ahead. You know whether it's fairer administration of tax policy or, you know, really nerdy, dreadful stuff that I'm interested in all the way to, to, to life-saving technology at our hospitals, at our call centers or other things like that. I mean, there are enormous upsides here. And, you know, maybe people will look back at this window of time and say this was a, a pivot on, on some sort of, you know, some sort of grid of evolution that we harness these tools and we became better for it in a lot of ways. I think I think that's a possibility, right? I think so too. And some of the potential uses of this are like life changing. I mean, I've seen papers about how artificial intelligence has been used to develop new cancer treatments. Uh, you know, so these are potentially like life saving tools that that we might be using. I know at, at the Summer Mako conference, we had a representative from the Comptroller's office talking about. Um, how it's going to make processing of our tax returns uh, simpler, more administratively uh, doable. So both small scale and large scale, I think I think that's exactly right. I also, you know, I don't want to like convince people not to be fearful. There's certainly a lot to be concerned about. Um, but I, I think sometimes we get just a little too negative and panicked because the news stories are about the, the horror stories with the use of this technology. And it's like, you know, the, the man bites dog is the, is the horror <laughs> story, but the dog bites man is, Oh, you know, artificial intelligence made this work significantly easier than it used to be. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think sometimes the, the small advances for the zillions gets, you know, drowned out by the big story. <laughs> 
And like this, this sort of stuff happens in, in tax policy and economic development, international trade and so forth in, in lots of different ways. But, you know, to the extent that we all can benefit in a bunch of small ways, just by whatever, I mean, if it's, if it's your, 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 the length of time you wait in line at the MVA for your new document ends up being cut by two thirds over the next decade, that's a tiny quality of life improvement for every Marylander. And that's not nothing. Right. Totally. And then multiply right. that by the hundreds, if not thousands yes. of those types of potential uses. And, you know, I think there's that part of me that really wants to embrace it. And then for every time I do that, then I'm like, oh, are my students cheating on their exams by just using chat GPT? So, <laughs> you know, I, it depends on the time of day, <laughs> my, my level of positivity right. about this. But I just try and stay grounded, appreciate the good set up governance structures that can do these sort of balancing acts between the beneficial uses of this technology and addressing some of the risks. And I think that's really the best we can do at this point. All right. I like it as a good way to put sort of a close parentheses on this part of the conversation. Um, Appreciate you walking through it and leaving with, I think, uh, a little more silver lining than I had even anticipated. So I'm, I'm in a better place having talked to you and I appreciate that. So absolutely. Anytime. So, um, so I'll be honest. Um, I had hoped that we would end up talking this week and get you on the podcast for this week. And my nefarious plan was that we would have a little back and forth in anticipation of the Super Bowl. We're not we're not selling anything here, so I think I'm allowed to use the name of the game, unlike right, the people who, exactly. you know, in the who commercials, the licensing just, fee. Right? Yep. <laughs> so, they say the big game. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So, but um, you know, in, in a more nearly perfect world than this one, we would be talking now about our beloved Baltimore Ravens and. Okay, so we're proud to have you as a Maryland guy and affiliated with the University of Maryland at Baltimore, but you've got Bay Area roots and you are a red and gold guy. You're a Niners fan. That is correct. (laughs) Okay, so this is a different conversation than I'd hoped to have, including on my tickets from this past weekend, where I really believe both of the home teams had an opportunity to win big, and that's... That's where my money was. That didn't work out. Um, But okay, so let me frame it a little differently. Rather than Ravens, Niners, how about this? We've got some disappointed listeners who are enthusiastic Ravens fans and now might be a little homeless coming into the big game. So maybe sell us on the 49ers. Why uh, Why should they get on board? Well, this is the easiest job you've ever given me because, I mean, (laughs) I basically do this in my head all night, right? Uh, So first of all, you know, for those Ravens fans out there, you have the chance to defeat the team that just ruins your incredible season. Not for Uh, nothing, right. (laughs) Don't you want to see Patrick Mahomes walking off the field suffering, uh, you know, the sting of defeat? Don't you want to see Travis Kelsey you know, having to be consoled by Taylor Swift because he's, <laughs> lost, he's lost the game. Wouldn't that be sweet after what you all went through on Sunday afternoon? But even beyond that, I, there are some things that I think everybody can love and appreciate about the 49ers. Uh, our starting quarterback, Brock Purdy, was the very last pick in the 2022 draft. Uh, he only right. played in 2022 because our top two quarterbacks both got season-ending injuries. Uh, and it turns out that the scouts really misevaluated him. Uh, 
he is definitely undersized. He doesn't have the best arm strength, but the guy can play football. Um, he has incredible accuracy. Uh, you can tell in the way he came back in the NFC championship game, he has killer instinct. He has scrambling ability. Mm. And he has that just kind of it factor where you feel like you're living in a sports movie. This guy who nobody yeah. gave a chance is now leading a team to the Super Bowl. So I, I will start with that. That's uh, pretty good. That's, it's that's, pretty good. And that's, yeah. that's almost like um, it felt a little bit like I'm watching the Olympics, right? They have to puff us up with the human interest and stuff like that. As we lead into some sporting event, they, you know, they want to bait the hook a little bit that way. And as I recall, okay, so like I'm, I'm, I'm a nerdy analytics guy. Um, Brock Purdy tested off the charts on one of these like intelligence tests. And so that was one of the things that was unusual about him coming out of college was he didn't have like the greatest game tape necessarily. He didn't have all these superb measurables and wasn't the refined athlete of some other players and so forth. That's why he goes at the end of the seventh round of the football draft. But he did crush this test which is supposed to be about thinking quickly and processing and that is seemingly a useful skill for the person you know who touches the ball every play in football yeah i mean i think in some ways the brock purdy experience could revolutionize the way teams are approaching drafting quarterbacks because i think so much of it was okay we'll pick the guys with the raw talent uh and then you know they can learn our system Things like instinct, game reps, all that can be developed over time. Yeah. What you had with Brock Purdy is somebody who played all, basically all four years at Iowa State. So we had a lot of reps. The guy we drafted third overall in the 2021 draft, Trey Lance, had <laughs> basically played one season of college football. Um, they only played one game during the COVID season. So you have a guy who's had a lot of reps and, and experience reading defenses uh, and reading plays. And then, yeah, the intelligence he has the vision downfield the ability for him to go through his progressions like there are a lot of really bad quarterbacks in the nfl right now and to me it's just remarkable that this guy was passed over in favor of all those other guys given what we given what we see right now yeah it it, it's a really interesting story i i will say um if one of the things you like about the ravens as i do is the way they go about their business is so professional and methodical and thoughtful and and uh, really admirable in a lot of ways, then there are a handful of franchises in the NFL who I think you can, you can support for similar reasons. I think Philadelphia builds their team and runs their team in a similar sort of fashion. And I think, I think the San Francisco 49ers are another of those franchises um, the, the regime they have at the moment is is thoughtful. They they have, they they've got a they've got an offensive um, an offensive minded coach who seems to get the most out of virtually everything he touches. Um, and like yeah, this story with the quarterback is just one more chapter in that book. So I think there's a lot to like if if that's your brand. They're they're an exciting team to watch, but it's not an accident. This is it's it's a uh, what is it? Uh, art is the residue of design. There's a lot of that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you like watching playmakers, most of them we cultivated in the draft. George Kittle, 
was a fifth round pick. Our tight end yeah. deep yep. Debo Samuel was a, was a second round pick. You know, we, we traded a lot of draft capital for Christian McCaffrey and ESPN gave that trade a C minus for the 49ers. And, uh, I like to, you know, go back to that article every once in a while to remind myself that the experts aren't always correct. Well, we could probably do the an entire standalone episode about uh, whether it's the right idea to invest in the running back position in the modern NFL. Um, I used to make a joke that we'll say I, when I when I recognized that I was steering into stupid side content that wasn't for everybody. I would sometimes make a mention. We'll put that on our OnlyFans site. And then we started getting people saying, maybe that's not the reference you want to make there. So we'll call that. That'll be on the subscriber only feed, um, that sort of thing. But all right. So, all right. That's a good case for the 49ers. If you're true purple and you are wearing your purple and you are all ready for the flock, um, maybe consider the Ravens. Ben is giving you some, some good onboarding. Um, let me close out with one more thing that is a little part of our brand. I will give this a shot, although I'm not terribly optimistic. I got a dad joke for you, and I know you're a dad. So I sure ready? am. Let's All do right. it. So it's actually, it's sort of a computer nerd version, too. So did you know that there are 10 types of people in the world? Those who understand binary and those who don't. <laughs> See now, he actually laughs. Now I'm not going to explain the joke because that would like shovel, it ruins it. Yeah, it ruins shovel, it. shovel a dirt onto the manure. So you know, if you're lost, probably best that you just stay that way. It's all good, um, folks. Or just Google binary and right, you'll yeah, get the joke yeah. very quickly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's there's many paths to get you to the end of this. Um, thanks so much for joining us, Ben. Really appreciate you having me on the pod. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Michael. All right. Um, Friends, we're going to wrap up this episode there. As always, if you enjoy the Conduit Street podcast, go ahead and subscribe. That way we will get every episode sent right to the device of your choice. Follow us on social media. That's on Facebook, on the Conduit Street podcast, and that thing we still call Twitter. I guess you can do that as well. For Ben Yellen, for our producer, Chantel Malcolm-Lim, this is Michael Sanderson. We... We'll talk to you soon.